Welcome to the Tone That Made Us podcast. Today's guest is one of the most accomplished musicians, producers, and educators we've ever had on the show. He started in the early 80s New York hip-hop scene and toured with the likes of Curtis Blow and Rick James. Later, touring, songwriting, and producing with Ashford and Simpson, the mighty Luther Vandross, Shaka Khan, J-Lo, Bonnie Raitt, Little Richard, Vanessa Williams, Beyonce, and I, I could I could just keep going on. Um, I'd love to uh, welcome to the podcast my friend, writer, performer, producer, and educator, Ivan Hampton. James, how's happening? Dave. Oh, Dan, sorry. Dan, it's all good. Dan. All good. <laughs> So um, this is a little bit of a departure for us, and I'm sure by the time we go in, this will so be far, podcast, yeah. maybe 12, 13. Um, we tried to start off with friends of ours who were musicians, like hometown mm -hmm. boys that made good mm -hmm. and uh, tried to get comfortable with it. And then we've started to invite on some 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 idols and we started to invite on some people we never thought we'd sit and talk with. And, and, and here we are talking with probably one of the most accomplished people in the industry. Um, I'd like to start this off the same way we always do, which is to say we've all at one time been touched by an artist that made us want to be a musician. But when was the first time you saw a musical instrument that inspired you to say, I need to do that. Wow. So, you know, my family, there were, there, there were musicians in my family. My dad fooled around. My grandfather, his father played drum set in the twenties and thirties nice. and, and my father's older brother as well. So, I probably saw my first drum set at about four years old that I remember going to grandpa's house. And uh, I have I have memories of sitting on my father's knee, swinging at stuff, you know, and yeah. trying to do it, you know. Um, so that, the music that is almost this lineage of drummers in that that have been in my family. Uh, my my grandfather's father, who was, you know, my grandfather was from Barbados. His father was in Barbados and he actually played a uh, steel pan. Oh, wow. So, you know, my great grandfather, my grandfather, you know, uncles and cousins. So there was music around and with that, uh, that Caribbean background, you know, we would get together and, and and they'd play all that old old calypso and stuff and somebody i had an aunt that had an upright bass and it was a, a kunga in the house in, in her house and we would get together and doom doom and dance around and get in the line and you know and folks you know you would see other elders fooling around none of them were really really serious about it you know they they just did it for fun and and played around so um yeah, that that's I first saw that stuff very very young. And that's then awesome. The, yeah, and what a lineage. What was Grandpa's name? Gladstone. Gladstone Hampton. Yes. <laughs> and you're a junior. Your dad was I'm an Ivan? Ivan Junior, right? And dad Correct. was an Ivan, right? Yes. 
Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So uh, what kit did grandpa have sitting around the house? If if I'm right, it's prob- it was probably some kind of Ludwig. You know, I, I remember the sparkle blue, I, you know, um, you know, by, t- by the time I was old enough to know what it was, all of that was gone, you know, <laughs> so I never got to see it at a, at an older age where I could say, oh, wow, grandpa, you had some Zildjian's and blah, blah, blah. You know, I don't know, you know, but uh, that was all pre-war stuff. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and the stories that I've heard is, you know, so he he probably got into the States in the, the middle 1920s or something and, you know, made his way to Harlem. But what they did was he would they would to raise money, they would play house parties and play rent parties. So they get together with other musicians and play. Wow. Um, my, my uncles and my father, so Gladstone had 10 kids in a New York apartment. <laughs> right. That sounds about right. Five boys, five That's girls. That's the way all of our families. Right, anymore. that's right. So 10 kids plus their friends, he would come home from work, toss everybody out, everybody get out. And my uh, uncle, uh, Gladstone Jr. We called him Uncle Stoney. He was playing. And Grandpa, the stories I would hear, would come home and say, what What are you doing? Get off the drum set. Let me show you how this goes. <laughs> That's <laughs> great. Now, you know, so they were all jazzers, man. You know, they all, you know, I, I had the stories from my uncles and my father about going down to 52nd Street and checking out Dizzy and Max Roach and they'd hop across the street and go over here and see Miles and see this one and that one. So I heard those stories, you know, so that it was all inspiring. And then to have my uh, first cousins, you know, a little bit older than me, marching band, somebody played trombone, somebody played drums. So, so, you know, that we, we had a, a musical connection in the family. Um, And it's crazy that all three of my sons are drummers, you know, yeah absolutely <laughs> and, um i know some of them yeah uh, so when it comes down to your first non-family inspiration when when did that happen um that's a good question so i guess listening to you know the records of the day the slide stones the zeppelin records uh, you know, I, I had, I had a, a very eclectic, uh, ear and taste, you know, so back then, you know, WABC was, I had the little radio by the bed and you heard everything though, you know, you heard pop, you heard rock, everything played. So I was inspired by all of that music. And, you know, of course, you know, I'm all old enough, you know. I was in the first grade in 1964. So, you know, I saw the Beatles on TV. I saw, you know, that I, I, I remember watching In Concert and Sly Stone and all these heavy bands, man. And it was just like, man, it looks like something to do. I, I, I can, you know, I think the music of the day really, uh, of course, uh, Michael Jackson affected me a lot because he was my age as a kid 
he was born the same year. So I see this kid my age out there with this band and I, and I, I paid attention to him, but always had my ear to the band. You know, I was listening to the drummer. That cat is funky, you know, <laughs> and trying to figure out what that was, you know? So by 11 or 12, there's a couple of the kids in my neighborhood. We're trying to play music. We're trying to play, you know, uh, a slide stone tune or, or, you know, uh, you know, I remember my my first record that I ever bought was a Beatles record, a 45. I, I believe it was I Want to Hold Your Hand or something. Nice. You know, so, yeah, you know, all of that was very inspiring. Um, and then by the time I actually got to, in, in my neighborhood as well, they had a, a community center. So there was lo- a, a couple of local bands and I got to see some of those guys and that really touched me. There was some really good players. Um, and of course they were playing the music of the, of the day, you know? So, you know, uh, uh, you had the Tower of Power stuff and all this, you know, they had horns in the band and different stuff. And I'm sitting behind the drummers. <laughs> so it's interesting him. because the majority of the people that we pose that question to, you know, they're very inspired by these sort of larger than life musicians, right? Yeah. Uh, you see someone on TV, you go to a concert, what have you. Um, the way that you grew up in Manhattan was very much the way that Dan and I were exposed to music and inspired by music on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Right, right. Right. So we it were was everywhere. We, yeah. It was everywhere. We were inspired by contemporaries friends people that we palled around with more than we kind of were from the the superstars yeah that came later you know that came that definitely came later but you know i think that was reachable you know what i mean it's like oh this guy he he lives in the next neighborhood i see him all the time i didn't know he played and you see this guy tear the drums up and then you see the keyboard guy and somebody singing you go I know these guys, you know, it's like, whoa, I didn't, I had no idea. So it inspired me, you know, what was interesting too about, uh, so by the time I'm six, my grandmother gave us a piano that she had got for my mother and my mother played as a kid. So they forced us on the piano. That was my first actual instrument, you know, so I learned I did the piano for three years, six, seven, and eight. The teacher sucked. She, she, you know, she, she, <laughs> she was horrible. She, you could, t- you know, in retrospect, I know she did not like having to teach kids. She didn't want to be there. She, but she had to come and make her money. Yeah, and she right. was connected some to some church or something. And uh, so by eight, you know, she's yelling and I'm, I'm like, and I'm looking up like lady, please. Yeah. You know? Way to make the kid love playing an instrument. Right, right. Yeah. So I begged my dad, I said, dad, there's a church in the neighborhood. There's a guy, there was a young kid in there, probably a college kid, you know, really nice white kid, cool as hell. And he was recruiting and uh, tried, you know, it was cheap. So I convinced dad, let me take lessons with this kid and let go of the piano. And he let me do that. So I started, you know, getting my first rudimental instructions. 
you know, and I kind of was getting a little bit from cousins, but it was nothing serious. This was like formal now, you know, so I'm starting to, oh, okay, you know, with my little drum pad and we would sit in a circle and uh, that kid was so inspiring. He just was a nice person and he knew his crap. So he, you know, I looked forward to go and see him every week, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know. I had yeah. a very similar uh, experience originally when I took drum lessons. First guy was an older gentleman, just didn't connect. Uh-huh. Next guy they sent was a six foot two long hair rocker dude. Yeah. Uh, and at that point, you know, that inspired me to, to learn, you know, yeah. to keep, yeah. to, I looked forward to those lessons. Yeah, man, it matters. That connection is so important, you know, so, you know, teaching now, you know, I try to, you know, I, I don't teach one size fits all. You know, I, I try to connect with the individuals, see where they're at, see what what's inspiring them, why they're even here. And then, you know, I still give them that foundation, but I try to bring some stuff around that is attractive to them as well. So that, you know, it's like, oh man, oh, you know, so I find out, you know, who are you listening to? What do you like? You know, I do that kind of stuff in the classroom. How often do you get turned on to something new that blows your mind? Oh, the kids turn me on to stuff all the time. You know, they turn me on, you know, uh, you know, uh, some of these new artists and, you know, so, uh, uh, kids turned me on to Snarky Puppy, okay. Lettuce, 1975, duh, 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 you know, whatever, you know, all this different stuff. And, and, and uh, like, oh, really? Oh, you not hip? No. <laughs> hip, hip me. Hip, hip old me. man. <laughs> you know? <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So what was your first real kit? Oh, man. Uh, Zimgar. <laughs> Zimgar. Do you remember that? It was like, no. yeah, it was, it was piece of junk, <laughs> you know, thin little plywood and, and, uh, you know, uh, but, uh, as it's what mom could afford at the time. And I went, uh, so now I'm about 13 and, um, I'm, I get my first summer job. And so I needed symbols, man. I, I saved the money. I found an old pair of Zildjian uh, hi-hats at, at a pawn shop. So mind you, this is 1971. Yeah. They had to be from the 60s. I still have that cassette. Oh, wow. I still have them. Never never had them appraised or anything or, or took them to uh Zildjian to see, you know, but I still have that set of symbols. That's um, awesome. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I finally started collecting symbols and getting stands and different stuff. And uh, I played that drum set, you know, I, I started doing gigs by 14. I was dragging that thing around with a trap case, put all the drums inside each other and push them down, you know, <laughs> try to get a cab or whatever. <laughs> But I was I was playing it. It was a piece of junk, man. Um, uh, and I kept I kept it even up until my kids were born, and gave it to them to beat on. Oh wow, you that's know? awesome. So my first real set, 
1977, I graduate high school, 76, and I go to the Bronx, uh, Bronx Community College, and uh, I'm in their jazz program as a performance. And uh, I did the first, I did the first semester, but by now I'm starting to gig. I'm starting to uh, work with the Dance Theater of Harlem, uh, Eartha Kitt pops wow. up. I end up in her band. So at you know, seventeen, uh, 18, 19, 18. 18, so around 19. the time everybody knows her as Catwoman. <clears throat> right, right. You well, know, you know, she had of... she she had been Catwoman. She, you know, she got blacklisted and left the country. Um, do you know that story? No, I don't. Oh man, uh, Lyndon Johnson, Lady Bird Johnson. She spoke out a bit against Vietnam. And all of a sudden, she got blacklisted. So that's why she t- disappeared from Batman and all that other stuff. She left. She went to France and Germany and stuff and performed. So by the late 70s, early 80s, she comes back and ends up on Broadway and does a a, a play called Timbuktu. Mm-hmm. Kind of brought her back. And that's right when I get pulled into her orbit and end up in the band. And wow. I'm I'm in school, and I'm like, oh, okay, well, Dad, I'm in school. I'm <laughs> I'm I'm working. I'm studying to do what I'm doing already. Yeah. <laughs> One of those years, I took my financial aid check, and I went down to Manny's. <laughs> <laughs> I said, screw it, and uh. This was the year Rogers came out with the memory lock. Mm. You, you remember that one? I do. Yep. So I still have that kit. And my kids played that too. Uh, but uh, I, grant, I I bought that memory lock kit, man. And uh, a buddy of mine, you know, he went with me down there. Uh, I forgot he went. He remembered jump, helping me get, get it all back home. You know? <laughs> and... Uh, I'm in I'm in an apartment. And I set him up. I start playing him. I start gigging, and man, it was the best thing in the world. It was like a real drum set. I'm like, crap. I played crap for so long, but I made the crap sound good. So by the time I got on something nice, it was like everything went up. You know, I was nice. like, oh man, those old Rogers kits had incredible hardware. They were always known for great hardware. Yeah. Obviously, the memory lock. What color was that kit? Uh, the I had the, the uh, that silver, the chrome silver one. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got them in a case out here in, in the garage. Now, once I got them back for my kids, after you know, it's like, look, everybody's got drums now. I want those back. You know, <laughs> yeah. this is this is a man. Them things are forty something years old. They got their you know? money. You got your money's worth out of both of those kits. That's for sure. Oh yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. You know, and uh, you know, for me going through them and then passing them down, and you know, each one of the kids, you know, next, next, next. Even a couple of their friends would take the kit and borrow it. You know, <laughs> so you know, <laughs> like extended nephews kind of. You know. But um, yeah, I got a lot of miles out of that kit, man. Um, that was, uh, I played that for a long time. And then as the gigs got better, backline starts showing up, you know, so I'm starting to play, you know, the Pearls, the Yamis, whatever's, you know, 
And of course, all the in the rehearsal halls, I used to love playing those old uh, Ludwig kids, man. Just the, you know, the, the 60s, 70s series. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh my God, those kids are so smoking. I, I was, I'm surprised I never really purchased one. Um, but after that, that, that Rogers, and uh, 10 years later, I end up on Yamaha, you know? And it's been there ever since. And yeah, you know, so, um, but along the way, you know, just running into kits. Uh, do you know you know who uh, Ralph McDonald was? No. Percussionist? I'm familiar. He also a big writer. Uh, he and uh, uh, he had a team called Antesia. They wrote uh, just the two of us for um, uh, Bill Withers. They wrote uh, Where is the Love for uh, Roberta. You know, they, wow. they wrote all these hits. And Ralph, they were first call session guys in New York. So they did all the jingles, all these records, them Bob James records. Duh, 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 duh. Wow. So they were like the East Coast wrecking crew. Yeah. Yeah. They they were the cats. So um uh it was uh Bill Salter, Ralph McDonald, Bill Eaton, um Arthur Jenkins, who happened to be my mother's first cousin. Oh wow. So halfway through high school, 15, 16, she she calls him. She knew that he was involved somehow in the record. Hey, my son, the oldest one, I think he's really serious about this. Could you pick him up and 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 take him? And and you know, so the thing about Arthur, he's on all these records. He's on Lennon's double fantasy record. Mm. On a record before that, uh, Bridges, Walls and Bridges, I think it is. Um, he's on, you know, the, the main ingredient, the Shaka Khan records. He's on all these records and he did jingles and stuff. So I hadn't met him until then. You know, I knew that part of the, my family, that my mother's side, but really had no relationship with him. And he came and snatched me up and took me downtown from Harlem. And first place he took me was to this place called Antesia Music Publishing, which was Ralph McDonald. Uh, I meet Steve Gadd for the first time there <laughs> in the hallways. I meet, uh, you know, Gordon Edwards was uh, uh, playing bass, uh, you know, all these heavy dudes. And, I, you know, I mean, people that names I was reading on records and I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> you know what you know and and i got to sit in a few sessions and and you know in the middle of high school and watch steve gad walk in the door burn up a session and run out the door to the next one you know oh this is steve oh okay <laughs> like what was that you know wow i got my mind blown but i'm telling this story too because in in their office they would cut demos and they had this awesome uh Gretsch kit, 18 inch kick, you know, might have been a 10 or a 12 and a 14. Yep. Classic. Real basic. And they would just cut their demos there and then and then pitch their songs and 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 then blow it up to the studio. And I used to go in there and Arthur would let me sit back there and say, hey man, can I can I play them? <laughs> man. And by then I was 
I was into uh, Tony Williams. Yeah, you know, so I'm seeing Gretch and different things, and now I'm touching and seeing them. That kit was, and the kit, and the kit had calfskin on the kick drum, dude. Oh, wow. that thing sounded insane. It was I never seen calfskin on a drum, and I I went what he said. Oh yeah, it's calfskin. Don't hit it too hard. <laughs> yeah, right. Can't get any more of those. Yeah, man. And they they put a mic in that, and they would just cut their demos, and and you know they would have Steve Gad come up there, or Bernard Purdy was you know passing through there. That was that was who was who wow. was there. Uh, Chris Parker, um, you know. You name them, the New York guys. <clears throat> they were coming in and out those doors. So um, I'm, I'm, you know, I got taken to uh, a Walls and Bridges session, and Arthur introduced me to, to to Lennon. Man, I I had no, you know, he would just say, "Hey, come on," and and we jump in the car. I didn't know who I was going to see. I would have died to have a camera. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> but he was so nice, you know. He said, "Hey, kid, nice, you know, nice to meet you." And then they, they, he, my cousin says, "Sit down here. Don't touch nothing. Don't say nothing. <laughs> Keep your mouth shut." Yes. <laughs> and I sat there and watched him cut a tune. Wow. You know? Yeah. Wow. So you know, I I was blessed to to have somebody like that that grabbed me, and showed me. This is the this is the uh, record business. This is the musicians union. He took me to the union. I'm like I said, I'm wow. 15, 16. Um, this is this is called a jingle. This is called a record date. Well, you see, uh, he played keyboards and percussion, so he started telling me about doubling. Oh no, that's another check. If I if I you know I play keyboards and then I come over here and play a tambourine. They're gonna pay me again. I said, "Oh, really? You know, <laughs> I like that." <laughs> yeah, no kidding. You know, and you know, all those cats were readers, man. You know, they came in thirty minutes to forty-five minutes. They was in there out the door, and he would drag me from session to session with him. Amazing. So that was that left a huge impression on me. Oh crap! I got I got to get my crap together. I got to learn how to read. I got to be serious about this. I, and it it really focused me to to seek out study and 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 learn, you know. Um, and I had gotten a little bit, you know, once I got to college. But I had, I had really worked up by by uh, you know by the time I left uh, Bronx Community, I was pretty much reading pretty, pretty solid. And then I took another shot and went to Rutgers in Newark and uh, ended up with a Broadway play. I mean, you know, I'm doing, trying to go to school. I'm like trying to do the right thing, get the degree done. And I keep getting pulled out on this work. Earth is working more. She takes me on the road. I get this Broadway play. Um, uh, 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 remember, uh, Philip Michael Thomas and Don Johnson. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, Philip Michael. He, this is before he became famous. He was in the play. Uh, uh, wow. Oba Baba Tunde, Calvin Lockhart. All these. It was called Reggae. It was um, 
a Michael Bennett production, and he, you know, he came from the Joseph Papp uh, hookup, you know, chorus line and all of that. You know, he right. came from that, wow. but he was uh, Michael Kamen was the musical director. Do you know who he was? Michael Kamen scored like uh, 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 all these big Disney. Uh, uh, oh wow! Aladdin, and he 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 scored that stuff. This was before he ended up out there doing that. And he passed away, unfortunately. Nice cat. Nice, nice cat. And then how I ended up with this gig, it was called reggae. The production tried to pull in musicians from Kingston, Jamaica. So they were grabbing guys from Jimmy Cliff's band and Marley's band. And the union is like, oh, 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 oh. You got to hide. You got to hire our guys. So I get this call. Hey, can you play reggae? Uh, yeah, I can play reggae. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure. Snare on three, ready to go. <laughs> I made friends with those cats, and that was school, man. They taught me the culture of the music and the history of it. It was amazing. The drummer was a cat named Ronnie Murphy. He was Jimmy Cliff's drummer for years. And, you know, out of that whole Marley thing, man, and Sly and Robbie, they, they, you know, they were, that was all part of that. And uh, they sat there and taught me all this, all this stuff, you know, while I'm getting paid by the union <laughs> to, to, to do the gig. It was amazing. So, you know, it just expanded, you know, me musically, and I was able to read the stuff, but man, you, you just, you know, that. You know, you play, you play, you see rock guys try to play jazz or you see jazz guys, but you got to know the, the nuances or, or country. You got to know the nuances of each music. It all brings a culture with it. And that reggae stuff, boy, you know, I could play the notes, but whew, when the cat, <laughs> you know, just, it was like, damn, you know, so I learned a lot from that. Um, they, they, that, that was a great experience, man. So uh, this was all just stuff happening all the around the same time Eartha was still there and that was happening and trying to go back to school and, trying to finish your degree yeah <laughs> you know I I, got, I left I, I got out of school man I was I was freaking working yeah you know yeah it's a burden to hand right yeah yeah so at this point it sounds like your parents were very um especially with your dad coming from such a musical family your parents are so extremely, it seems like, supportive through this. So what do they say the first time they see you play on Broadway? Um, They were thrilled. They were excited. So, you know, and I'm, you know, you, you, you're in the band, so, you know, you don't get really that scene. But they were, you know, my mom would, would come out way before that. With the neighborhood band, we'd be in some in some bar in the village with six people in the audience and my mom come down with her girlfriends, ah, that's my baby, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and support us, you know? And so she had been doing that. She, you know, while I was in high school, like I said, uh, you know, I was doing organ trios and stuff like that. I was in bars that I was too young to really be in. She was picking me up at two o'clock in the morning at the end of the gig. You know, and I, and, you know, dropping me off, picking me up. And, and so, you know, that support had been there 
way before that. Oh, it um, sounds it by pulling her cousin yeah. in. Yeah, I'm sure she wouldn't have wasted his time if she didn't see some oh, yeah. amazing talent. Yeah, yeah. So from those little, all of that, you know, early stuff, she saw, you know, and and she was great, man. You know, so, you know, by the time I was 12, my parents separated, but they stayed very close. They supported us. So I'm, I finally get this drum set and I'm, I'd be practicing. She'd come home from work and she wouldn't say, you, you're making me sick. Stop it. I can't take it. She, she would say, she would yell down the hall. Would you get off that damn one beat? Will you change the beat? Just change it, please. Play something different. You know, I'm working out something. And she's like, oh, <laughs> I can imagine what she was. <laughs> Will you just change the beat? Change, do something different, you know? You know, but she always had that caution in her. You know, listen, if this doesn't work out, you know, think about something else you could do. You know, and I, I looked at her sideways. She says, you know, like zoology. I said, what? Zoology? Mom. <laughs> All I could think of is picking up animal poop. <laughs> you know, I'm like, Mom, really? Zoology? Where'd you, where'd you get that from? <laughs> you know, but you know, they, they were very supportive, man. Um, you know, um, it was, it was, it was good times. It was, it was, uh, what it was, you know, and <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So, so so when did you start to transition from, not transition, but whatever the the path was into more recording, touring? Uh, like how long, did you do a lot of stuff with Broadway in that circle and then move on from there? Were you doing things simultaneously? It, it was kind of simultaneous. And, and, and uh, you know, the phone would ring. I'd, I'd tr try to take each opportunity that got pre presented. Um, um, the Broadway stuff was connected to the Earther thing and, and getting pulled to, 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 you know, to go and tour. So that was some of the early stuff. Uh, you mentioned Curtis Blow. You know, Curtis grew up in my neighborhood. So the neighborhood band, we would rehearse at the guitar player's house. His parents were really open and, and, and all you boys come on and you want some chicken, you know, they feed us or whatever. Mm -hmm. And Curtis was a little bit younger and we hung out with his older brother named Kim. Well, Curtis would be into the music and hang out at the rehearsal. And we would send him to the store, hey, Curtis, listen, go to the store, get me a Pepsi and a pack of barbecue and bring back my change. <laughs> so we used to send him out to the store and he'd come back and just want to sit there and, and listen to the music. I go away one summer to Virginia to spend the summer with cousins and I come back and this dude's on the radio. I'm like, what? <laughs> These are the breaks. Yeah. Bring it up. I'm sitting like, what the hell? Now he wants a band, he's doing, uh, he's doing, uh, you know, little presentations and stuff. Russell Simmons had 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 was signing him and all of that. So he called, he came back to the band and said, "Look, I want you guys to be my band." So, you know, 
from sending him to the store. Now he's my freaking boss. I'm like, <laughs> like what the, <laughs> you know, and it was cool. And so we go out to Queens and, and different little places and, uh, I'll never forget this too. So, uh, we did this one, uh, show. It was like a showcase and, uh, it's LL Cool J's first time on stage. Oh, wow. He's backstage, wow. scared to death. He's 16 or 17. Man, I'm nervous. I said, man, do your thing, man. We know we just all supporting him. And of course, Run DMC was Russell's brothers and his family. They're there too. So he's Russell's showcasing his his hip hop stuff. So it's Curtis Blow, uh, Run DMC. And this new artist named LL Cool J <laughs> with the little wow. Kango. And he's he was a kid and he was scared to death. <laughs> so I, I I got to see him. I want to say it was uh, 2000, 2001 at the Grammys. We were at the Grammys and I caught him after the show. And, uh, and I stopped him and I said, L, can I talk to you for a second? And I reminded him and he fell out. He says, oh my God, I don't even remember. I said, yeah, man, I was there with, you know, I was the drummer with uh, Curtis and blah, blah, blah. He's like, oh man, thanks for telling me that. He cracked up, you know? So I got to tell him the story. It was wow. cool. It was real cool. <laughs> he's uh, he's a pretty rad dude. I think I ran into him. It was at that same Grammys. That was the Madison Square Garden one? No, no, this was in L.A. This was L.A., so it might have been the year. Oh, no, this would have been 2003, I think. Yeah, after, yeah. Was was at, yeah. Uh, it was 2002, 2003 at Madison Square Garden because he had sampled one of my cousin's records. Wow. So my cousin, Linda Costa, who uh, went by the name Lynn Christopher, Wow. She she did disco music and, and wow. he had ended up sampling one. And I kind of I out of nowhere just hit it up and he was like, Wow, totally. <laughs> I remember he goes, We used to spin that record all the time. So I just started singing over it. Okay. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Good for her. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> She's a sweetheart. She's very cool. So um let's start to talk about. I mean, you had such a great storied career in R and B. Um, I'd love to start to hear a little bit more about that and then maybe how you got into, um, in, into producer. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I was actually, uh, writing and producing before I, I, uh, before Asher and Stimson grabbed me, you know, and, um, the same cousin, Arthur Jenkins. He he uh, was involved with a guy named Ira Cosson. Ira had this record company called uh, Urban Rock Records. Ira um, was uh, doing, you know, kind of a jazz. He played flute. He wasn't the best guy flute, but you know he played flute. Flute, but he knew he knew everybody in town. He knew, um, you know, he knew Patty Austin. He knew Arthur. He knew all the all the artists and stuff. And he had the bread, so he would hire them to cut these great records. Arthur would do arrangements, and 
you know, Leon Pendarvis and this one and that one. He would pay the big, the big buck guys and get them in there. Carlos Alomar was part of that. Um, that's where I first met Carlos, and then I end up in Luther's band, and he and him, he and Carlos, they childhood friends, I find out later. But I had already known him. So I get end up playing drums for Ira. And I did a couple records, and he's asking, hey, you, you write songs? I said, yeah, I can write a song. So I wrote a song, uh, uh, Bobby Floyd. You know who Bobby Floyd was? He's passed, too. Frank and Bobby Floyd, these they were heavy-duty jingle singers. They sang with everybody. Okay. They did sessions. They sang uh, uh, jingles, uh, you know. Phoebe Snow, blah, 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 blah. You just, you know, they 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 were the guys of the 80s and, and all of that. They came out of Chicago and another guy named Zach Sanders. So I wrote this song called You're All Mine. It's actually on YouTube. YouTube you can find it. Um, and he sang it. And Ira was like, man, this, this is great, you know. Then uh, I knew a couple of girls these three girls, I put this little group together and wrote a song for that. And I, I pitched it to Ira. He went for it. It was called the Splash Band. Um, this is this is 83 or so. And um, we kind of had like a little regional nice buzz. It wasn't a breakout hit, but um uh you know, it's 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 still popular in Europe, man. They're all into this '80s sound. I've gotten calls from France to license it. I've I've had it licensed twice wow. <laughs> in in the last in the last five years. You know, That's like, awesome. Are you the guy that wrote that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, no problem. Yeah, let's do it. You know, and the guy who was smart <clears throat> enough to keep his publishing on it. Oh yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So it, Arthur Jenkins, he taught me those things. You know. So um, now hip hop is getting popular. I'm the young, I'm the kid in this, in this space. And Ira turns around to me, he says, hey man, I'm thinking about messing around with some rappers. I want you to be the producer. Oh, you know, cause I'm closer to those ages. And, you know, I, I you know, he knew I came from, I, I had experience with Curtis and all this. so. I ended up producing uh, about, uh, I think it was three groups that he had. And all of that stuff is out there on YouTube. I still find it and see it as, you know. And uh, so- What are some of those groups' names? For our uh, the DBL Crew, uh, TOC, um, the last one, I, I, I don't think we actually got the record out. I can't even remember these guys, but it was, you know, but those, those two were the guys I, I worked with the most. And I would sit up in the studio and calmly, look guys, it ain't no, look, this place is worth millions of dollars. Don't, don't, don't act stupid. You know, <laughs> <laughs> same speech you got from your, from your cousin. Right. Right. You know, cause these guys had no idea, you know, they, they did beatbox and had a DJ and wrote their lyrics and, you know, and it was old school stuff, you know. Wow. Um, and uh, one of the groups, uh, the DBL crew, we had, uh, again, another moderate little 
case, they had one song called, they, they called it Bus It. But uh, in the middle of the song, they one of the guys whistled sitting at the dock of the bay. So bus it. Boom. You know, and it caught on underground kind of. So, you know, so now and and the other thing about producing that stuff at that time, too, was I had those senior guys around to go to to, you know, Carlos Alomar helped me out. Arthur helped me out. Um, uh, great engineer, um, Joe Furla. Joe Furla has is his 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 discography and resume is ridiculous. He's done, you know, Shaka, Roberta, this one, that, you know, he's done everybody. So he was the engineer. So, you know, I'm doing this stuff. I'm getting it done, but. The learning curve is high. I'm learning. I'm, I'm trying to take it in. You know, what's this knob? What's that knob? What's that? Oh, that's a compressor. What does that do? You know, <laughs> and reverb. Oh yeah, patch bay. What? You know. <laughs> so you know, I'm learning this stuff. You know, and uh, it's all analog before I needed this digital stuff. You know, so um, you know, splicing the tape, cutting a, a what? A, you you cut the tape? What? <laughs> You know, <laughs> that's an amazing time. Yeah, you know, so all of that ha was happening then, and so at the at the same time, I'm still doing sessions, um, and I meet a, a gentleman named Paul Griffin. Paul Griffin is on Dylan Records, piano player. He's on all this stuff. He was another one of those high-profile New York guys, keyboard player, arranger guy. Paul was pretty wild. He was out there. But he kind of took me under his wing as well. And he starts getting me on a few jingles. Well, this one particular jingle I remember, I think it was a Mercedes-Benz. And the arranger was Ray Chu. Ray Chu was Ashford and Simpson's musical director wow. so i do the session hey man you sound good and then the other thing about ray chu is my high school girlfriend who i had my first child with he went to high school with her so we knew of each other she used to tell me oh this is a guy named ray chu he's doing all this stuff and music's on these records and again i'm a, i'm reading credits i see his name i'm like oh you know, so we knew of each other and that came up and uh, a few weeks later, my phone rings. Hey, this is Ashton and Simpson's office. Are you available to do a rehearsal on this date and time? A couple weeks later, absolutely. And I showed up and I did it. Uh, so what was happening in Ashford and Simpson's band was Yogi Horton, the drummer, was doing Ashford and Simpson and Luther at the same time. He was double dipping him and the bass player Tinker Barfield. They were double dipping. Luther's starting to get really busy, and Nick and Val is getting kind of pissed. It's like, look, we want our own guy. So that opened up a door for me. So 
I came in, I do, uh, I do the rehearsal and it goes great. And, and what was weird too, is their biggest hit was what they, they were releasing then uh, solid as a rock. Yeah. Oh, wow. Classic. So I get to the rehearsal. I knew some of the guys, um, Francisco Centeno's on bass and, you know, I'm meeting some of the other cats and, uh, I'm reading through the chart and, you know, okay. Kind of sounds like a weird song. And I'm listening to comments from some of the other guys in the band. Like, oh man, this tour is going to suck. <laughs> this song, this song, this song is horrible. Nobody liked the song. <laughs> Next thing you know, that thing went through the roof. We toured for two years on that record <laughs> and did live aid. I was, I was six or eight months into the band and did live aid. They were like, Hey, we got this gig in Philly. I didn't pay attention to, I didn't know nothing about the advertising, nothing. I get on the bus, we get to Philly, we show up at the stadium and I go, what the hell's going on here? Wow. Like only one of many stadiums around the world doing it that day. Yeah, it was crazy, man. You know, so I'm walking around. Of course, Bowie's there. Um, Carlos Alomar's his MD. I see Carlos Los. What's up? Hey, man. Hey, come here. Meet, meet, meet David. <laughs> I meet Tina Turner. You know, we, we're backstage floating around. You know, I'm not trying to get in anybody's way, but. You're in your mid-20s at this point? 27 ish how mind-blowing is that how many times in your career have you stopped in the middle of what you were doing and go holy crap this started at the community center in harlem (laughs) uh you know so much of it was moving so fast i you know not until much later you know like wow you know and and I, I think some of what helps me do that is I'm still friends with some of the guys that were in that childhood band. The, my bass player and one of the guitar players, you know, it's like, yeah, man, we remember when this and that. And they, we, we, and they bring up stuff that I completely forgot about. Probably too much weed, you know, who knows, you know <laughs> back in the day. But I completely forgot about. And they said, oh, no, man, we, man, we used to come by and you'd be up there practicing all damn day and blah, blah, blah. And you know, so I have those those old friends, childhood friends that remember stuff that I didn't even think about. I'm just I'm just going forward. I'm reaching for the next thing as it gets put in front of me and trying to accomplish it. You know, okay, I want to do a good job. <laughs> I want to get called back. Wow. You know, so yeah, so much it it was boom, 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 boom. You know. So how'd you segue into Luther? So, um. The same drummer, Yogi Horton, who was double dipping, he moves off to Luther. As a matter of fact, today, 35 years ago, he died. Oh, no kidding. During the tour, he went out a window, 17 stories. During the tour, they were at Madison Square Garden. Wow. I got a call that morning and and the only reason why I know is it was today because his sister I stayed with she posted a picture and and made, made mention of it. I'm like, wow. <clears throat> so wow, he, was that like a was it an accident or like 
like a PCP incident so, or some something? Some kind of it's it was never clarified. Right. There was drugs involved. There was different things happening. Sure. It was rock and roll lifestyle back then. Crazy, crazy. So they're in a, in a hotel down in um uh in across the street from the garden, and this cat ends up. I get a call seven thirty four, you know, seven eight o'clock in the morning from uh, Ash from the Simpsons manager. Hey, Yogi Horton just went out a window and died. I had to wake myself. Yo, who's this? What right. you know? Like, what did you just say? Wow. Yeah. Because the other thing about that was, Yogi and I were just really developing a relationship, and he was busy, man. He was, he was, he was doing Bob James. He was, you know, he's on Aretha Records. He's on all this stuff. And once he saw that I took the gig and followed him in Ashford and Simpsons, he starts calling me. Hey, man. I can't do this gig. Can you sub? So he's sending me work. I'm like, heck yeah, I'm in there. No kidding. Next thing I know, he's gone. So um, um, that day, um, uh, can't think of his last name, Brian, great drummer. Good friend. I don't know why I'm blank on his last name. He's an old friend of mine. No problem. Happens all the time. Yeah. He subs. We can take this out and post. We can edit it. Yeah. He, um, damn. Anyway, he, he, he subs that night's show. They go on and do the show. And, you know, great reader, wow. great player. And he does the show. But he called me to sub his gig on a boat. Lou Marini, Richard T, Stanley Banks. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Who got the cooler gig? Holy crap. <laughs> so I go do that gig. Blue Lou and all of that is first time I worked with him. But, you know, I think... Uh, might have been Cornell Dupree on guitar. It was ridiculous. So um, I go and do that gig. And the next two weeks or so, Nat Adderley is auditioning drummers in New York, trying to get a replacement. And he finally calls me. He calls me up. He says, Ivan, I've been trying not to call you. <laughs> he said... <laughs> He said, I've stolen so many musicians from Ashford and Simpson. <laughs> Nick and Val. What you gotta understand too, Nat Adderley Jr., the MD, he was the he was their MG first. <laughs> Him, the first band was uh Nat, Buddy Williams, and Francis, Francisco Centeno. So now he's over there. He, he stole Yogi, he stole Tinker, he stole this one, that one. And he says, man, I've been trying, they're going to kill Nick's me. Nick's going to put a hit out on him. <laughs> yeah, he said, I've been trying not to call you. He says, but I can't find nobody that can play never too much right. So he says, look, I got to I gotta hear one more cat. Um, And he's at SRI calling me. And, and if it doesn't work out, I'm going to call you back. It didn't work out. And the cat that he told me 
I hate I don't even want to say his name, but but you all know him. And the cat that he told me, phenomenal player, but he's just looking for a certain style, a certain flavor. And when he said that, I said, man, I'm not letting go of the gig I got. And actually, Nick and Val has slowed down. I had taken Jonathan Butler's gig. I was supposed to do Jonathan Butler for the summer. And Nick and Val wasn't working. So I said, okay, yeah, I could do Jonathan. And I already booked it. Nat calls me back that night. He says, hey, man, I need you to come up and meet me at my house and, and, and come pick up the music. I go up to his house. I walk in the door. He takes me to his bedroom. He's got an upright piano in the, in, the, in the bedroom. I sit on the side of the bed. He opens up never too much. And I play my knees on the floor. And he <laughs> starts playing piano. I said, mm, 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 mm. He said, oh, I'll see you at rehearsal tomorrow. I was hired. That song has a feel to it that if you if you don't get it, you don't get it. You don't get it. And I've seen you and Byron. Yeah, I've seen you guys perform that a number of times. Yeah, over the years. yeah. It's a, it's a specific. I'll never get it. I've yeah. sat down to it. I've tried. Yeah, it's not in me. Yeah, it's 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 space and things. You know, just how we, where it sits. So um, it, you know, yeah. I, I probably played three minutes or four minutes. He said, he says, "Man, I see you at rehearsal tomorrow." I did the rehearsal that day and got on a plane the next day and went to uh, California and we did the Rose Bowl, Rose Bowl <laughs> night. My first gig after one rehearsal, <laughs> ninety thousand people, and wow. I'm standing backstage. Luther finally knows five minutes. Five minutes to showtime. Luther comes out. Oh, Lou, this is the new drummer. Hey, how you doing? And I go on stage and we play this 45 minute set and we get to the end at House is Not at Home and Luther turned around and went and that sealed the deal. And I had been there until he he left the planet. <laughs> wow. wow. Yeah. So it's, it's been a, a wild ride. The strangest part of it too for me was I ended up replacing Yogi Horton twice. I replaced him in Ash from the Simpsons band. Then he leaves, he's gone, and and I end up replacing him again. I'm like, you know, it that was that 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 has been uh strange. That's weird, so weird. That is awesome. So when everything wound down when Luther passed, mm -hmm. what up until then, you were getting pulled left and right. It was gig to gig. It was gig yeah. on top of gig on top of gig. Oh, yeah. You know, you were getting Yogi's leftovers. Sometimes <coughs> you were getting his his firsts. Mm -hmm. you, then you're in this solid gig for a really long time. Yep. Yep. What's on your mind at that point? What's your next step? Do you take time off? Do you immediately get pulled? Does the pull start happening again immediately? So, so in between those gigs in the pull, when I when I did get home into New York, you know, I had built a studio. I'm writing. I'm getting songs on 
on Luther. I got a song on Mavis Staple. Um, and my partner at the time was Paulette McWilliams. We were in a relationship. We sit, we would sit in the house and write all day, every day, until it was time to go on back on tour or we or whoever, whatever sessions happened in between. You know, so that that whole production and, and composition process continued. I ended up with uh by ninety-three I ended up with a uh co-publishing deal with Polygram. Nice. So, you know, Where was your that, studio? Tribeca. I had an apartment in Tribeca, um, Harrison Street, about five, six blocks from the World Trade Center. Ah, wow. And yeah. what was your setup in the studio? So, ironically, I, uh, I had bought a soundtrack solo from Samson. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so I had that. I had a... Uh, Shout out eight- to Richie Ass. Right. <laughs> I, I had a, uh, 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 I started out with, uh, I had a Tascam cassette recorder, eight track, and then I moved up to the ADATs. Mm-hmm. So I had the three ADATs with the rec- re- remote control, I had a ton of outboard, you know, ton of outboard gear, um, you know, uh, PCM 70, Rev 7, this, all the crap of the day. Right. Um, and then a ton of keyboards, you know, M1, D50, uh, 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 yeah, I can't even remember half of the keyboards. I had a, a mini Moog. I had a, nice. a ton of stuff, you know, so I had. Were you tracking live drums at? No, at I was, studio? I was, you know, so it's the 90s. Secrets. Yeah, I was sequencing. I was programming a lot. And that was helpful because I really got my program chops up. So Nick and Val used to hire me to come up to their studio and program drums. Sometimes Luther would want me to come and program. But mostly Luther wanted me to play drums on his stuff. You know, so a lot of cats were not doing as much live, depending on, you know, especially the R&B, you know, thing. That whole scene was you know, MPC or Lindrum or whatever it was at the time, yeah. you know, so uh, the everything got more electronic. Um, yeah, purposely. Yeah, yeah. Right? most yeah. of the time when when anybody's sequencing or they're they're writing, they're using um, um, they're just using MIDI drums. It's it's at a necessity, right? right. Recording in small apartments or, right. or what have you. But at that point, it got very purposeful. Yeah, and 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 the other thing, it 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 cut budgets down. Yeah, you know, you weren't you weren't sitting in in at the hit factory for two three hundred dollars an hour doing that stuff. You could do it in your bathroom, <laughs> and then at the end, take it to hit factory and blow it up with the big mix, you know, so, or somewhere. You know, so I used to do a, a ton of stuff at home. Uh, you know, um, I. I uh, Luther was doing his Christmas album and he's up in the studio. He's got Marcus in there and everybody's in there. And he calls me up, Ivan, what you doing? I said, oh man, I'm just kind of getting going. Look, get your lazy butt up. I need, I need a party tune. You know, I know you got stuff sitting around. So I said, oh, okay. And I ran out to the living room where I had my setup and I started going through stuff and I said, oh, okay. And I found something 
and I, I kind of reorganized it and I called him back to, Hey man, I think I got something on my, on my way. And I went up there and he loved it. It turned into a song called the mistletoe jam, which is kind of one of the hits off to the, off the Christmas record. And, uh, but you know, it's all sequenced and, you know, Ray Bardini made it sound great. And Marcus played bass on it on top of my MIDI bass. Um, you know, yeah, you know, I'm, I, they kept my keyboard work and all of that stuff. And, you know, and then Luther laced it up with all the vocal stuff and boom. And uh, so I had two songs that ended up on that record the same kind of way, you know. That's just so cool. <laughs> it really is. Pretty much yeah, speechless. Man. Yeah, exactly. We're just sitting here. For, for I'm not going to say anything. There, I'm just going to listen. And, <laughs> Dan and I are sitting here with stupid grins on our faces, <laughs> listening to all these stories, which I'm sure is exactly what you guys got going on. Um, yeah. So now you move on uh, into the 90s. You got Vanessa Williams, and that's been a pretty long standing relationship so, so, as well. So, right? so yes, but so now, you know, she opened for Luther one summer, a tour. J.T. Lewis, her regular drummer, great friend of mine. Well, the first time I get to play with her is J.T. started this band and he had a tour. So he couldn't do some of her dates. They called me up. I show up, I do the gigs. And, you know, we did the, like uh, the Venetian and some other stuff and, you know, and then, um, you know, he's, he's, he's her, you know, I wasn't trying to inter interrupt what his, he has with her. That's, that's, he's got, they've been, that band has been there with her almost 20 years or more, you know, but when they needed help, my phone rang. So um, 2015. I get that call again. Um, this time, you know, JT had some other issues, you know, and uh, health wise or whatever. And, and uh, she had these gigs. And uh, again, you know, a lot of, lot of reading music. So that, 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 that time we did, um, I did two shows. I did, the first one was uh, the band and a 50 piece orchestra. And the, the the music was insane, you know, Stephen Sondheim and all this stuff. And then, and even her record stuff, you know, that was her hits, but all this theater and dude, I got a picture that you could see I'm standing it and the pages are across two stands and I'm, I'm one rehearsal. I get there the night before the gig. We do a, a rehearsal. I guess I think we probably started around noon. Got the sound check happening three to five. We did the rehearsal. Eight o'clock was showtime. Wow. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> just shooting through the stuff, man. <laughs> so, you know, uh, that stuff I learned watching Steve Gadd and all them guys, you know, having that skill to be able to make the music feel good the first couple times you see it on a piece of paper. You know, I mean, I learned to read with, with my eyes and my ears, you know, it's not a one thing. And, and, 
you know, make it make sense, make it feel good, make be there, make sure you making the hits that need to happen. And uh, that orchestra one was was a challenge. And then I did a second one on that same run was just the band, which was like a lot less intense. But that that that, that and the orchestra was great. It was uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Great great players out there, man. But it was intense. <laughs> you know, we we think about Dan and I, you know, playing in sort of a crappy, you know punk or hardcore bands and there there are things that can go wrong right oh, yeah. but like we know how to cover them up right playing with that many variables right not just a flute a row of flutes not just you know a couple of brass players but an entire orchestra of brass yeah yeah. I can't imagine how nerve-wracking it is for everyone who's never met to sit in front of me, just to be that confident of your reading ability, not just to be able to read the notes, but to read the inflection. Oh, yeah. Right? It's just, it's mind-blowing. And, and, and you still, and you got to still stay connected to your conductor because he's he's pushing tempos around, you know. He might want it to go a little faster or slower or, you know. But um, yeah, you know that's insane. Yeah, yeah. It, no, I learned. I, you know, I learned. I learned a lot of things, man. For, you know, the dance state of Harlem was working with orchestras. You know, we did Stravinsky. We did a lot of different stuff. So you know, I I got to be exposed and 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 have experiences that helped me. You know, just take those to the next place. And what uh, while I was at Bronx Community College, what was really cool is they had worked out a program with the Metropolitan Opera. So I don't wow. know about all the players, but I know the percussionists, the drummers, they were sending us down to Richard Horowitz, who was the principal timpanist down there, to do privates with us. So he 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 was tough, but you know you did you did timpani and mallets with him, and you had to knock you you know you had to show up and knock on the door and sing him a middle C. I'm on a freaking train with a pitch pipe going. I'm walking down the street from the train. Here 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 comes Lincoln Center. People looking at me like I'm out of my mind. I'm like, no, I got to sing this man in the middle C. <laughs> you knock on the door and you got that C. You you almost want to talk in that note, you know. Hey, hey, Mr. Horowitz. Uh, you trying to keep that note in your brain. <laughs> and of course, he wants to chat. How you doing? <laughs> like, can we get to the note, dude? Can we get to the note? <laughs> I'm losing it. I'm losing it. <laughs> But he taught me some amazing stuff. You know, you had to tune those drums and, you know, the theory, you know, you, you had C, but now you got four drums. And from that C, you had to find a B flat, an E flat, an A flat, an F, a G. So you you learned, you know, you learned the scale. You learned those intervals, you know, a fifth, a third, minor third, you know, you learn all that stuff. And, you know, those, the timpani players are, outrageous because they're tuning 
while the rest of the 50 players are playing. They're retuning drums in, in the middle of that. That crazy. <laughs> That's nuts. So, you know, I was able to take the, you know, I think some of that helped me even in a Luther's setting because he was, it was so orchestrated, you know, strings and, and the, 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 those feelings, you know, the Roberta Flack, you know, and I was, I did, I did Luther and Roberta at the same time, J-Lo in the middle of that, <laughs> you know, for, for a second during her first record, Jennifer Holiday, Vanessa, it was like, I remember uh, being out in Europe for a month with Luther, flew home, I had a day turnover, flew to Vegas to do uh, Vanessa, oh uh, no, uh, uh, Felicia Rashad. Oh, wow. We opened up for Cosby. Wow. And at the, at the Vegas Hilton. And I, I did a, I did a two or three weeks out there, you know, and it was my birthday too. That was crazy. I flew home. It's my birthday. I flew out there, went back the other way. <laughs> God, what incredible experiences. So yeah, it's quite a career. What made you decide? Well, actually, it's uh, this is a loaded question. So Ivan's got an incredible music institute now. He's an educator, tons of students. So I was going to say, what what made you decide to sort of plant roots to start that and kind of get off the road? But you still keep going back on the roads. So. I go back and forth. So, you know, um, Things got weird. Luther had the stroke in 2003. 2004, I went through about with cancer. Wow. Did did the treatments, but I was I was doing the treatments and still working. I was working with Stephanie Mills. I subbed for Omar Hakim and did Chic. <laughs> um, and you know, and then uh, Ray Chu would have me fly back and forth and do uh, uh, some of these uh, different variety type shows. We did uh, the, the R&B Foundation, you know, and that was great, uh, you know. So you you do those shows and you you just, you're the house band with these cr incredible players out of New York where all these stars come. So Bonnie Raitt, Al Jarreau, uh, Maceo Parker, uh, Aretha, uh, uh, I mean, it's in, and it, it back, back to back, they're coming up on stage, Shaka, um, uh, this one, that one, <laughs> it's ridiculous. So, you know, I was doing all of that in between my treatments. Wow. You know, I was doing like radiation and jumping on the plane on, on Friday and coming back Monday and doing that. That's intense. It, it, it took a lot, took a lot out of me. So I kind of said, you know, I, I slowed down for a second toward the end of it. And I said, man, let me see if I can just pick up some students. And and it, it was part therapeutic for me too, you know. And uh, man, I started out with seven students and a year later I had 70. Hmm. You know, so, you know, I, I found it, it was almost like I found a, a calling 
but at the same time, you know, I'm still writing, I'm still producing, and and if if the right call comes, I'm I'm gonna jump on on the on the plane, you know. So, um, yeah. So, how many students does uh, does your studio have now? So, I'm I'm primarily uh, virtual now since the the whole COVID thing. Mm -hmm. um, um, I let I let the building go. I was I was paying. I was paying um, rent for an empty building for almost a year, you know. Yeah. So I let the building go. Um, so I'm, you know, it's it's it's. Eventually, I want to get back to a brick and mortar. It's taking a little time, you know, building it back up, and uh, you know, I'm 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 probably. It's it's not as many as seventy, you know, but I'm you know I'm at, at a good forty ish, you know, and it's virtual. That'll keep I got, you busy you know. weekly. Yeah, yeah, forty yeah. students solely. Um, yeah. If anybody doesn't follow your social media, they should, because I get to see these genuine smiles from both sides. Thank you. Yeah, you know, from you and your students. And now I'm watching just recently this past week, you're posting a lot of pictures of your students who are now graduating, going off to college. Oh man. You know, yeah. I can't, how many years you're teaching. This those, crew? Those, I just have those, one question. Yeah. Do they know how awesome you are? Oh man. The connection is ridiculous. They, a lot of them know some of the stuff, um, you know, their parents know, you know, <laughs> even, even their grandparents, I'm their grandparents age. You know, so you know, I talk about you did live aid, <gasps> you know, <laughs> you know, and uh, the reaction I just had, you mean, when you said that, <laughs> yeah, man, yeah, that, that, yeah, that, that, that was amazing. Um, but yeah, you know, so and and like you said, you know, the two, the, the couple. There, there was two young guys that I posted some, and I went by the family's house. They're going to college. I got them as they were entering middle school. Cool. So those kids, you know, they stay. And that connection, I know grandma and grandpa and uncle so-and-so and, you know, and, you know, that is, is, is very rewarding. I love doing it. Um, I leave. I love seeing the spark in the eye. And what's interesting is too, um, some of them start out as drummers, and then decide, you know, hey, Mr. Ivan, I want to learn something about the piano. I'll take them over to the piano, get their theory strong, and then the next thing I know, it's like, I I got this computer software. I've been trying to write songs. Oh, so I can take them there too so i'm able to you know it's not just you know all pounding on drums all the whole you know 12 years or whatever it is yeah i can move them around and help them out with you know composition songwriting you know production you know understanding how to work their daw setup you know that's um, so important too being able to having access to that kind of information in real time, like as you're developing your, you know, your, your tastes for whatever you want to do with music. 
Absolutely. That's huge. That's huge. Absolutely. And and even the conversations of, you know, these guys they 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 with their peers. They they're getting into band situations and, you know, just even to talk about that, that you know, the the personalities and, you know, and you know, and and chemistry and all the other things that you, you we know about because we've been there. But you know, oh, you, yeah. you, you, a young musician is like, hey, I'm going to get with my buddies. We're going to jam out. And then, you know, somebody turns out to be a butthole <laughs> or, you know, or is is not as serious as the next person, you know. And, you know, I tell them, I said, look, you guys are young. Don't be the best guy. Don't be the best guy. That's not, you don't learn when you're the best guy. If you're the best guy, everything stops there. If you if you you want to be around some other people that know something different from you, and 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 if you're the best guy in the room, is is dead. Yeah, nowhere to go. Yeah, there's nowhere to go. So you know that kind of information too to give these young musicians as well is invaluable. You know, because I had I had that from you know from those superstar musicians in New York, those mentors gave me information like that, you know, and, and even to talk about the business of music, you know, music publishing, copyright, talk about an ASCAP, talk about, you know, sync yeah. rights and, and royalties and things like, wow, what's, you know, and they say, yeah, there's a business out here. This is, you know, they call it the business for a reason, for a reason. you know? So, you know, you know, you had such amazing <clears throat> mentors, you know, your entire career, yeah. more so than any other musician I've ever heard, but you can go back to 16 year old Ivan Hampton and you could give him one piece of advice. Mm. Ooh. 16. Um, that's a good one. Um, Wow. I would have I would have probably gotten a little bit more serious about my studies of, of the instrument earlier, maybe as a musician, um, you know, so I went to Catholic school. There was no music in Catholic school. I went to 12 years. What school did you go to? What high school? I went Rice High School in Harlem, Irish, Irish Christian Brothers. Yeah. Kick, kicked your butt. <laughs> I went to Nazareth in Brooklyn. So oh yeah, right see, see, you know about it. <laughs> so, um, I would have seeked out, you know, because I wanted to go to music and art, and I had no foundation. I couldn't get in. But on the other side of my career, I ended up playing with all the guys I would have been in school with at music and art. <laughs> You know, Marcus Miller, Buddy, you know, you know, uh, Ray Chews, my age, he went to music and art. You know, I would have been in class with all of them guys. You know? Um, yeah. Well, that's the one thing about music. Everybody finds their own path to the end right? mm -hmm. or to, to where they end up. Let's yeah. Say. Um, yeah. And it's amazing clinically, I think throughout whether it's music or, or just careers, mm -hmm. you know, I, I've found my own path to where I am today 
and clinically I'm very different than many of my contemporaries. Mm-hmm. Dan as well, you know, found his way through graphic design and art direction and wow. and just through non-traditional methods. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's funny, I'll I watched last night we were watching um Mad Men. <laughs> and you know we're watching and they're talking about all these ad agencies back in the day you know back in the 60s and they're naming ad agencies that he worked at and i'm wow. like wow like these are real <laughs> yeah real ad agencies yeah but he didn't come up through you know traditional methods and yeah we yeah. we all find our pathway and uh it yeah. all works out the way it's supposed to work out. Right? Yeah, man. Yeah. So you, like you saying that, you know, I didn't, I didn't come up through a middle school band experience or, or, or a high school band experience. Everything I did was outside. I had, to, I had to go toward it, you know, yeah. um, I, I want to tell you this one experience. So I'm about 13. We're in Harlem. We lived on the third floor and I used to practice in my room. It was near the window. So, you know, sorry, the the people in the neighborhood knew I was there. They could hear me. And a block away down the hill on Amsterdam Avenue was this little bar. And they had an organ trio that played every weekend. Well, something happened to this drummer. And he didn't show or something. So they knew I was there. They say, who's the kid? Who's the kid? And they sent somebody around and they're yelling out the window. Hey, hey, kid. You know, I said, yo, he says, listen, we need a drummer. <laughs> These are old, hardened Southern cats, you know, scotch and waters, 22 in the belt type cats. And we, kid, we need, you know, so. Hey mom, is it cool? You know, it's a bar. I'm 13. They said, look, you just stay away from the bar over here. When we take a break, you can go outside or sit down in, in a booth and we'll get you a soda or something. I go and push the drums around the corner, down the hill, go in there, and I play. Um organ and I think the other cat played guitar and he sang. And I played the gig. Wow. I was, you know, I'm just holding on, just playing time and grooving, you know, basic stuff. I didn't do nothing fancy. And the cat said, hey, man, listen, can you do this again next week? <laughs> and, then he, and, and then he slipped me 20, and then he slipped me 20 bucks, which he probably would have should have gave me more. But I wouldn't, I was just so happy to play. I was like, oh, I get money too? Oh crap, I love this. And I did that for a couple of weeks and I I had this little run in the 70s between 13 and 15, 16. I played with organ trios all around Harlem. El Dorado Red, Johnny Copeland, uh Victor Davis and his his buddies, you know, they they, they were like the guys and all up and down 125th street and all through these little holes in the walls. <laughs> and I played organ trio, you know, and some of those guys, they, 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 you know, you know, don't play any of that fancy stuff, kid, you know, Hey, hit the drum, hit the drum, hit the, you know, they, they've given me this hardcore, you know, 
and you know, <laughs> it, it was it was cool to me. You know, I was learning. I was learning, man. So I'm playing, and I'm still playing with the the, the neighborhood band, and running off to do that when I could and make a couple dollars. But I loved playing with them guys because they were intense. They were just they were just raw. You know, they they you know these hard hardcore hardcore cats man they would <laughs> they didn't mess around you know an experience yeah so they you discovered know. you in your bedroom in my bedroom man. hey kid through the window get through the window i used to practice up there so. oh that's great <laughs> that's insane see that kids stick with it yeah, play, play loud. Yeah, play loud. Make sure people all the way down Amsterdam Avenue can Moral of the story, play loud. <laughs> well, yeah. Ivan, it's uh, it's been a while. Wow, this was so great. We had a awesome. blast tonight. Your stories same. are amazing. Thank you. I hope everybody else gets out of them the same uh, the same joy and happiness. You got to see Dan and I, our faces oh, right I now. Actually, Ivan's smiling too. It's great. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, love you, brother. It's been love way you. too long since I've seen you in person. We got to make. Yes, we definitely yes. have to change that. Can I? Can I throw a pitch out there? So you sure can. In the, the last month, in, in the last month, I've released me new music, and some of the music is music I recorded. You know, early two thousands, called Luther, and said, "Luther, I got these tunes. Would you sing background?" Luther's on. He arranged four songs. He's singing background with the girls. You know, I got Nat Adderley. I wrote two songs with Nick Ashford that's on this project. Oh, Lisa wow. Fisher is singing lead on one of them. So I got this wonderful project. It's out on all this, you know, Spotify and all this stuff. And one of the tunes is one of these 90s sounding tunes that is taking off in Europe right now. It's like London. Yeah, it's just like it's called Mama's Kitchen Table. It's it's uh Spotify, YouTube music, you know, it's on all this all this It's all, all under your name. Yes, under Ivan Ivan Hamden Jr. Click you the know, links and, in and, the and, uh and, description. And, huh? We'll have everyone can just click the links in the description. We'll make sure we have them all we'll in make there. sure the links yes. are in there. Absolutely absolutely. Yeah. So you can find some some a new project out there and I got more music that's gonna follow it, but uh Great players, you know, all, you know, Bashiri Johnson, this one, that one. I got all the cats that came out, you know, uh, Nat Adley's on it, uh, ton, ton of folks, man. So, uh, you know, I just hope folks can find it and, and enjoy it. We'll spread that's the awesome. word, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Very good. Well, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, man. Yeah, this thank has you been very great, much. I've, uh, I've had a blast. Yeah, man. And James, man, it's been way too long. <laughs> way too long, man. <laughs> we'll change that. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Take care. Dan. <laughs>